This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Endless Impossible, written and performed by Frank Burton. Endless Impossible will also be available as a book, the fourth in the Ragbag series. Buy a copy for each of your friends. You'll be the talk of the town. Later on, we'll enter the footnotes section. That's the optional extra content for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Let's continue with Endless Impossible. I'd like to begin this next section by saying, I love Nick Cave. I love all of his songs. I love his voice. I love the fact that you never know what kind of work he's going to produce next, but you can be sure it'll be different to the last thing he did. Aside from the occasional curveball, it's been a general rule since the early 80s that each new Nick Cave album has been better than the one that preceded it. If you're unfamiliar with Nick Cave, or The Birthday Party, or The Bad Seeds, or Grinderman, etc., you could be forgiven for assuming I consider his work from the early 80s to be pretty awful. It wasn't. It was genius. The fact that each successive album has been an improvement on the last is perhaps evidence of an almost superhuman talent. I want you to know this firstly because it's the way I feel, and secondly because I'm going to be making fun of him shortly. I suppose it's important that you know there's an underlying love beneath it all. For me, above everything else, Nick Cave is a storyteller. As such, there's a case to be made for him being the most important storyteller of his generation. There are many types of story in this world, and yet we've all been raised on stories that replicate the same two basic ingredients. 1. Acts of kindness are rewarded. 2. Acts of cruelty are punished. It's present in every single fairy tale you were ever taught, every comic book you ever read, every Hollywood movie you ever watched. As adults, we continue to buy into these two principles of storytelling, despite the contradiction of our life experiences. We know in our hearts it simply isn't true. Acts of cruelty go unpunished all the time. Acts of kindness are frequently unrewarded. The world is fundamentally unjust. Is that why we love all these stories so much, because they're escapist fantasies designed to help us forget about our horrible little world? Nick Cave writes songs about our horrible little world. Songs in which acts of kindness are unrewarded and acts of cruelty are unpunished. Dismiss him as cynical if you like. One of his best songs is called People Ain't No Good, so yeah, perhaps you have a point. He's also responsible for writing some of the greatest love songs of all time. Listen to The Ship Song or Into My Arms. We're not dealing with a man who hates the world here. We're listening to a man who sees the world as it really is. Sometimes it's beautiful and sometimes it's not. The line I keep coming back to is, They're bringing out the dead now and it's easy just to look away. It's true. Who really wants to look at the bodies of people who've been unjustly killed when they can look at the screen in the corner and see Spider-Man saving the day again? I could go on about this for hours yet, but I won't. Many music critics have done exactly that. It's time to do 
something the music press haven't got round to doing yet, which is making fun of Nick Cave. A lot of Nick Cave's songs include stories about men being violent towards women, often ending in their deaths. As is the pattern throughout his work, the violence is neither glorified nor condemned. It is simply described as a thing that happened. Often the songs will feature a creepy male protagonist with an urge to destroy something beautiful. Clearly it would be wrong to assume that Cave himself feels these same urges. In the same way we can safely assume that Jim Henson wasn't a talking frog. That being said... Cave doesn't half say some peculiar things about women sometimes. Take this one, for example. It's part of a scripted monologue from the documentary 20,000 Days on Earth. He didn't say it off the cuff. He thought about it, wrote it down, rehearsed it and recorded it. This is how Nick Cave, speaking entirely as himself, not some weird serial killer from one of his songs, describes the first time he saw his wife Susie. The first time I saw Susie was at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London and when she came walking in, all the things I had obsessed over for all of the years, pictures of movie stars, Jenny Agata in the Billabong, Anita Ekberg in the Fountain, Ali McGraw in her black tights, images from the TV when I was a kid, Barbara Eden and Elizabeth Montgomery and Abigail, Miss World competitions, Marilyn Monroe and Jennifer Jones and Bo Derrick and Angie Dickinson as policewoman, Maria Falconetti and Susie Quattro, Bolshoi ballerinas and the Russian gymnasts, Wonder Woman and Barbarella and supermodels and Page Three girls, all the endless impossible fantasies, the young girls at the Wangaratta pool lying on the hot concrete, Corbet's Origin of the World, Battelle's Bowl of Milk, Jean Simmons' Nose Ring, all the stuff I had heard and seen and read advertising and TV commercials, billboards and fashion spreads and Playmate of the Month, Caroline Jones dying in Elvis's arms, Jackie O in mourning, Tinkerbell trapped in the drawer. All the continuing, never-ending drip-feed of erotic data came together in that moment, in one great big crash-bang, and I was lost to her and that was that. There's much to admire in the way Cave articulates himself here. I said something similar myself once, recalling the first time I saw Heidi. Heidi was my girlfriend for two years. She's about to enter this story for a while and then leave again, the way people do. Here's what I said about Heidi on my podcast in 2018. When I was in my 20s, I went to the supermarket with 10 quid to last me until next payday. I was fine grabbing a basket of the bare essentials until I wandered into their music section and there, against all probability, was the new Beta Band record. On vinyl, no less. In Tesco, of all places. And it cost £9.99. And I wanted it. I really, really wanted it. When I was 14, I saw a model on the cover of a magazine in a newsagent's. Not nude or anything, tastefully done. And I knew that I wanted someone like that, who wasn't like all those nasty girls at my school. But even then... I knew I was projecting an idealised image onto the woman in the photograph. Maybe this model was a horrible person. And I felt the same way the first time I met Heidi in a coffee shop. She was reading a Murakami novel with an iPod on the go. And it told me so much about her that she liked the same things as me. Even without hearing what she was listening to, 
I knew it was something with substance, whatever it was. And I wanted her. I really, really wanted her. And what happened with that Beta Ban album in Tesco? I'll tell you what happened. I left the shop, went to the bank and I signed up for a credit card. Then I went back to the supermarket and bought the hell out of that record. I took it home and I ripped its sleeve off and I played it to death. And it was worth every single one of those 999 pennies plus God knows how much interest. And what happened to that magazine with that model that I liked the look of at the age of 14? I bought it. I used my bus fare and I walked home. It was a magazine for teenage girls. I made some super awkward comment at the counter like, it's for my sister or something. And the guy at the till gave me a look like, I know your dad, you're an only child, and I know what you're doing with that. Now that I've typed it all out, it's occurred to me the two quotes probably don't have a great deal in common. They're both written from the point of view of a man meeting the love of his life for the first time. They're both, to some degree, an exploration of the weirdness of desire. It goes without saying that Cave's prose is superior to mine. He's the most important storyteller of his generation, and I'm, well, I really am very good as it happens, let's be honest. But there's a crucial difference between what I said and what Cave said. First of all, there's our method of communication. I made my observation to a handful of people who happened to stumble across my podcast, while Cave's film was a major cinematic release. I'm just a guy talking about the day he met his girlfriend. There isn't much to analyse. Whereas if you disregard the carefully constructed articulate precision of Cave's statement, what are you left with? A millionaire rock star bragging about being married to a model. Susie Cave appears naked on the cover of the Bad Seeds album Push the Sky Away. She covers her face while, at the other end of the room, her husband, fully clothed in his trademark black suit, holds open a door. I don't know what the image is supposed to mean, but it looks like it means something. It's in black and white, so you know, that's artistic, isn't it? But strip away whatever artistry there is there, and what are you left with? That's right, a millionaire rock star bragging about being married to a model. I don't even know what point I'm trying to make here. I was hoping to add something to this recurring theme about male writers and their portrayal of women as though they're alien creatures. As much as I love his work, there's no escaping the fact that Nick Cave writes about women as though they're another species. I'd always assumed that was because his songs are works of gothic fiction, narrated by creepy, psychotic male oddballs. But then I read that quote where he's just being himself, talking about his own real-life experiences. And I thought, oh, I see, it's not just the fictional characters in his songs. He's just like my Uncle Claude. He thinks women are mysterious creatures. And my dad was right. They're not. And for that reason, I just can't take him seriously anymore. That's the way it goes, I suppose. People come into your life. You fall in love with them. Something happens to change the way you feel. And you move on. And then it happens again. One evening in the summer of 2006, Heidi and I were having a drink after work in a semi-crowded bar when Miss Angel walked in. 
I nearly fell off my stool. What? said Heidi. I mumbled something. Speak up, she said. I leaned across the table and whispered, That woman behind you on the left, she's ordering at the bar, the one right at the end. Heidi glanced over her shoulder. What about her? she said. It's her, Miss Angel. You know the name, right? You remember the story? Of course, she said, smiling and narrowing her eyes a little. What's that look for? I said. Did you think I was making it up? Not at all. I'm smiling because it's a funny story. Also, it's funny that she's here and not on whatever her planet's called. This wasn't the time for an argument, but something inside me wouldn't let it go. I was like this with Heidi. God knows why. What's so funny about the story? I snapped. You don't find it amusing? She said. No, I don't, I said. A good friend of mine fell for this woman's scam. I'd like to know what happened to him. Well, now's your chance, said Heidi. Go and talk to her. Confront her? Yes. I don't know about that, I said. I'm not a very confrontational person. Ha, she said dryly. Good one. What's that supposed to mean? It means, she said seriously, that speaking from personal experience, you are a confrontational person. Ridiculous. Why would you say that? Just listen to your voice, Frank, the way you're speaking. Well, of course I'm confrontational with you, I said. You seem to feel the need to challenge me on every little thing. I don't think it's me you have the issue with, she said. Eh? That woman over there, she's the one who's wronged you, right? I suppose so. It's just a suggestion, Frank, but now's your opportunity to get some answers. Even if she refuses to speak to you, it's worth a shot. I gazed across the room as Miss Angel took her drink to a table in the corner. Apparently she was here alone. I tried and failed not to stare. Well, said Heidi. I... I began. I don't want to spoil our evening. I can't leave you alone. Luckily I brought a novel, she said. Oh, I said. What are you reading? Zola. Which one? Earth. Oh, fantastic, I said. They say it was the author's personal favourite, you know. Get yourself over there, she said, before she disappears. Before I had time to offer any further objections, my legs walked me to the corner of the room and sat me down opposite Miss Angel. Aside from an air of general weariness and a few extra lines around the corners of her eyes, she looked pretty much the same as she did in 1989. Hello, she said blankly. Can I help you? I'm really hoping you can. Her piercing eyes inspected me with vague interest. Have we met, mate? she said. We have, as it happens. You taught me at primary school. Ah, she said. We met briefly a few years later in a hotel. Miss Angel suddenly burst out laughing, covering her mouth to stop herself dribbling. I realised at this moment she was either very drunk or heavily medicated. I should call you Tarquin, she tittered. Or Frank, which is it today? Good, I said. You know who I am. So, you know who I'm friends with? Yes, of course. Miss Angel polished off her glass of white wine and handed it to me. Would you mind getting me another? She said, smiling. Don't worry, I won't go running off. I'll tell you whatever you need to know. Why would you do that? I said, unsure of where I intended this question to take me. Miss Angel shrugged. Why not? I have nothing to lose, plus it's a good story. Not many people get to hear it. Actually... She opened her purse and presented me with a fifty-pound note. Get me a bottle of house white, plus whatever you're having. 
I edged over to the bar, peering over every 30 seconds or so, making sure this wasn't a trick. Miss Angel offered a playful wave each time I looked in her direction. I returned with the drinks. Keep the change, she said. Really? You might as well, mate. I have way too much. She laughed again. So what should I call you? Are you Eileen Angel today? Ellen Moon? Leanne Skye? Ashleen Craft? Lynn Heaven? If Miss Angel was surprised at my knowledge of her aliases, she didn't show it. I'm called Claire today, she said. Is that your real name? Now that's a closely guarded secret. I thought you were going to tell me everything. Not about me, about Dennis, she said firmly. I squirmed at the mention of his name. OK, I said. Good. Tell me about Dennis. Where is he? I have no idea. Why not? He disappeared. Seems to be a habit, I said. Let's backtrack a little, please. What happened when he came to see you in Devon? This will have been 1996, right? I was supposed to go with him, but anyway. Yes, Miss Angel confirmed. Dennis joined my community in 1996. He stayed for a while and then he left. How long is a while? I said. A year and a half, I'd say. That's actually quite a long time, I said. Living in those conditions, I mean. Conditions? What were you doing there, in that old church? I said. Preparing for the next phase, said Miss Angel. Dennis seemed to be fully on board with the whole thing. Then, one day, he wasn't. He walked out of the door, leaving whatever possessions he'd brought with him. Her voice was reduced to a croak. She spluttered, steadied herself on the table and took another sip of wine. Are you OK? I said. She pointed at me, laughing once again. You're wearing his coat, she blurted. That's not a similar coat, that's Dennis's coat. I know it is, I said. Well, where did you get it? She said, oh, oh, I see what you mean when you said conditions, you've been to the church. I have, I said. Pretty squalid, wouldn't you say? Squalid? For who? My community members? They actually had the time of their lives, but I appreciate your concern. Every single one of them told me they were more fulfilled sleeping on a mattress on a church floor than at any other time in their lives. Still, why not invest in some beds? I said, you've got the money. I've got the money now. The budget was absurdly tight before that. None of us had jobs and we needed to eat. So what were you doing there? What's this next phase you were preparing for? I've agreed to tell you about Dennis, she said. Dennis wasn't involved in phase two. She burst out laughing again. I'm sorry, she said. <laughs> that coat! I don't see what's so funny, I muttered. Miss Angel stroked my arm in mock concern. Poor little lost boy, she said. Did your father disappear on you as a kid by any chance? He waited until I was twenty-four, I said. But he was unavailable to you in childhood, right? Why else would you attach yourself to a man of the same generation? It's a shame your proxy dad turned out to be equally unreliable. So, hang on, your father disappeared when you were twenty-four. I nodded. I liked your dad, she said thoughtfully. You have a good memory, I said. As far as I know, you only met him once. Miss Angel shrugged. Force of habit. I always made a point of remembering people. He was an interesting one. Where are you going with this? I said. I was just wondering when you started wearing Dennis's coat. Don't tell me. It stayed in the wardrobe until your dad vanished. How do you know that? I said. 
basic psychology. You shouldn't be so easy to read. Ah, I said. Yes, I was meaning to ask you about this. You had this skill, reading people, whatever you'd like to call it. I do, she said. The day we met at that hotel, you told Dennis you'd read his book. Miss Angel nodded. So, did you actually read it? What do you think, Tarquin? she said. I don't think you did. Of course I didn't, she said, seemingly annoyed at the very suggestion. But you knew he'd written one, and you knew what it was called, and you knew his name. It was written all over his face, she said. No, it wasn't. You said so yourself. It's a skill. I'd show you how it's done, but to be honest, I'm a little rusty. I don't have a need for it any more. Why not? I'm enjoying my retirement, she declared, throwing her arms in the air. Can't you tell? Retirement from what? I think you know, she said. I'd rather not spell it out. I'd rather you did, I said. Let's be real about this. Last time we met, you confidently claimed to be an alien who was destined to return to her home planet in the year 2002. Was that true? Mate, she said, we're sitting in a Manchester bar together in 2006. The evidence speaks for itself. What I'm trying to establish is none of it was true, was it? You really want me to confirm it for you? You want me to confirm that I'm not from another planet? Yes, please. Why, Frank? You're an intelligent man. It should be perfectly obvious that I'm not. Dennis was intelligent too, I said. He was. And yet? He never believed that story, she said. The others did, but Dennis, nah. What was he doing there, then? You know what he was doing there, she said. He was an undercover journalist. And you knew that from day one? Of course I did. So why did you let him in? Miss Angel took another slurp of wine and gazed at the ceiling. Good question, she said. I've often wondered that myself. Personal challenge, I think that's the answer. Explain, I said. Perhaps you could say it's a simple case of keeping my friends closer, my enemies... How does the expression go? Closer? That's it. Yes, I needed to keep him on side. If I turned him away, he'd have researched me from the outside. You know, Dennis, he's good at what he does. He'd have exposed me in the press, and then what? On to plan B, I suppose. Plan B? The point is, she said, hang on, what's the point? You called it a personal challenge. Did I? Perfect choice of words. The challenge being, how could I persuade him to stop without revealing I was on to him? Luckily, I was able to bide my time nicely. None of us had access to the internet while living in that church. There's no way Dennis would blow his cover by stuffing a bundle of evidence into the local post box addressed to his editor. He didn't even make any notes. In the short term, at least, the only evidence he was able to gather was his own direct personal experience. With no means of recording it, and no opportunity to report back to the real world, Dennis's investigation was conducted entirely in his head. Luckily, getting inside people's heads happens to be a specialty of mine. But Dennis... Miss Angel's eyes glowed as she gazed into space. Dennis really was a challenge. He was firmly committed to his work, utterly unconvinced by anything I had to say, even the sensible stuff like maybe human beings should start being nice to each other for a change. He talked the talk in front of the others, 
When it was just me and him, that's when the question started. Did I really think I could pull this off? Phase two, I mean. I'm sorry I can't tell you about phase two. It really is a terrific story. Needless to say, he had a lot of questions about it. I had the answers ready too. Then came the questions about my origins. Is it possible you're mistaken? He said. You claim to receive messages from the mirror. How do you know it's not all in your head? Lots of humans hear voices. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Perfectly fine questions, of course. I don't resent what he was doing, by the way. It's his job and it's important to him. Or was. So, it's not any more? Put it this way, said Miss Angel. That story was never published. It wouldn't be from lack of interest or evidence. He could have written a first-hand account of his 18 months in my company, but he didn't. Why not? You'd have to ask him, she said, if you can find him. You have no idea where he went? I have an idea, she said. It's a pretty vague one and doesn't make a great deal of sense. Apparently, before he left, Dennis mentioned to one of the others that he knew of this place, this organisation of some kind who had some kind of long-running dispute with the government. They have this habit of kidnapping journalists. So the story goes, they have at least one member of the press in their captivity at any one time. It's all an official secret. It's possible that I'm breaking the law just telling you about it. Dennis was too. He didn't say it outright, but according to the man he spoke to, one of his ambitions in life was to be captured by this group, whoever they are. Why would he want to do that? Well, according to some of Dennis's friends who've been in the same position, once you've been taken in as their hostage, your captors treat you very nicely. Nice bed, great food, you're not locked up anywhere as such, you can do whatever you like within reason. Dennis said it would be the perfect setting to write another book. He disappeared a couple of days later. Strange he left his coat behind, to be honest. He was always wearing it. Maybe he felt like his clothes had been tainted in some way. It sounds ludicrous, I know, but maybe being taken hostage would be a fresh start for him. I agree, I said. Ludicrous. It's the best explanation I have. Sorry I can't help you further, I really am. I don't mean to make fun of you, Frank. I can see how much Dennis means to you. You've actually been very helpful, I said. No problem, she said. I've got loads more questions. I bet you do. You should get back to your girlfriend. Is that her over there with the book? I nodded. What's her name? I didn't say anything. You're not going to tell me your girlfriend's name? What do you think I'll do with that information? I'm retired, remember? Heidi, I said. Nice, she said. She's very beautiful. Eyes off her, she's mine, I said failing to pass off the outburst as a joke, despite following it up with my cheekiest smile, which probably looked weird in the circumstances. So, you're one of those boyfriends, are you? She said seriously. I'm good to her, I said. I'm sure you are, she said. Doesn't stop you being one of those boyfriends. I saw that look on your face as soon as I brought Heidi up. Merely mentioning her name like I did just now has made it all worse. Where does it come from, Frank, this frustration... This relentless insecurity. I don't know, I said quietly. Word of free advice, mate, she said. Wherever it comes from, you need to stamp it out. How? I don't know, therapy? Or maybe just write all your thoughts down, let it all come pouring out? Whatever that's happened in the past that's caused you to feel this way? You're a writer, right? How do you know that? I can sniff one out a mile away. You won't tell her, will you? 
Tell who? Heidi? What would I tell her? That I'm frustrated and insecure. But you think she doesn't know? I hope not. Trust me, mate, she knows. I'll repeat the advice. Do something about it. I'll try. Right, said Miss Angel, slapping herself on the knees. If you wouldn't mind helping me up here, I'll be off to my hotel room to pass out. Hotel, I said. You're just visiting, then. It's lucky you caught me as it happens. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. It's unlikely I'll be back. Where are you going? Canada. To do what? Help me up, please. I took her by the hand. She kept holding on to it for a moment after standing, shaking my hand with comedic drunken vigour. Very nice to meet you again, Tarquin, she said. Look after that young lady of yours. You can do it. You're not Humpty Dumpty. Well spotted. What I mean is, it doesn't matter how hard you fell, you can still put the pieces back together again. I was so busy thinking about this riddle, I'd failed to notice she'd left, or almost had. Wait! I called across the room. Miss Angel came running back, finger to her lips like we were back in class. Don't make a scene, she said softly. I was just curious about that old church you were living in, I said. It sounds like you haven't been back there since. Miss Angel shrugged. Why would I? Because it's your building. You own it, right? I used to. You sold it? Why does that surprise you? Well, whoever bought it hasn't bothered to clean the place up. Surely that's their business. I'm just curious as to why they wouldn't. If you must know, she said quickly, I sold both of my UK properties to a European businessman who presumably just wanted the investment as a means of hiding cash from the authorities. I didn't ask for reasons, obviously. A European businessman? You didn't just stick it on right move like everyone else? She shook her head, smiled and replied, I'm Eileen Angel. I don't do things like everyone else. Then she was gone. That was the last time I wore that coat. I spent the following day plodding my way through whichever mindless office job I was temping in at the time, then returned home to conduct my own administrative assignment. Dennis's box of paperwork had been sitting at the bottom of my wardrobe untouched for years, having never been thoroughly inspected or even thought about very much. Heidi had moved in a few months previously. We'd become experts at giving each other space. We weren't the sort of couple who spent our every available moment together, snuggled up on the couch. We didn't actually have a couch. I'd made the effort to purchase an extra beanbag. Anyway, Heidi spent most of the evening in the bedroom finishing off her Zola novel, while I stuck some tunes on and spread the contents of Dennis's box over the living room floor. I joined Heidi in the bedroom at midnight. She was already half asleep. I thought you were coming to bed, she whispered. I found something. I said. Can you tell me tomorrow? I'll be quick, I said, sitting down beside her. There's a series of handwritten charts like a timeline. I didn't know what any of it meant at first. Could hardly read Dennis's writing. He's been abbreviating Miss Angel to the initials M.A., but his A looks like a G, so it made no sense for a while. Once I'd established who M.A. was, the rest of the charts made perfect sense. The dates, the locations... Dennis must have started researching her before he came up to Manchester, before he met Miss Angel at that hotel. 
He mentioned all this, but I'd forgotten. He told me he'd written down her employment history over several years. But here's the thing. It's incomplete. 1989, the year that she taught me, she moved to a school in Scotland. The next year, nothing. No trace of what she was up to. 1991, she's back. Worked across three different UK schools in different parts of the country. 1992, nothing. 1993, three more schools. Then nothing until 1996, by which time she'd reinvented herself as a sales rep for a solar panelling company. Then I found the source material, a copy of Miss Angel's CV that Dennis had somehow gleaned from one of her previous employers, God knows how. All her personal info was blacked out, date of birth, NI number, etc. But the employment history was all there, such as it was. All that was written in the gaps were the words career break. That's all the information we have, so there's a whole heap of time unaccounted for. This led me to thinking, was she even in the country during those missing years? She does the accent perfectly well, but my new theory is, maybe she isn't British. There was something about the way she kept calling me mate in the pub yesterday, like it was a weird affectation. Then I realised, that's Miss Angel's whole way of being. Everything's an act, even the voice. In a way, if she's a foreigner putting on a British accent, it's almost comparable to an alien visiting Earth doing her best to fit in. This may have unintentionally worked in her favour. The only other clue I have is that she mentioned flying off to Canada, which doesn't necessarily mean she's Canadian, but it's an avenue to explore if I can dig up more details. I've been holding on to the contact details for those two guys, you know the cult members I mentioned I got the details for. I'm thinking now's the time to get in touch with them. They may not know where Dennis is, but at the very least they could shed some light on a few of these unanswered questions. Very interesting, she mumbled. Not quick, but interesting. Sorry, I said. You coming to bed or what? I won't be long, I said. I returned to the living room and booted up my computer. I never expected to be doing this, or maybe the opposite is true. The contact details for Christopher Chaplin and Tim Steele were waiting just inches away in the desk drawer. I typed an identical email to both. Hi. You don't know me, but we have a couple of mutual friends. Firstly, there's Dennis Gleeson, who may have mentioned my name at some point. In case he never did, my name's Frank Burton. I'd very much like to meet up with you and have a chat about some things. For a start... I haven't seen Dennis for years and would love to know what became of him. Secondly, I have a few questions about our other mutual friend, Eileen Angel. You may know her by another name, but I'm sure you can guess who I mean. You may be interested to know that I ran into her yesterday evening. She mentioned she's flying off to Canada and won't be returning. That's as much as I know. I'd love to know more. Perhaps you can help. Yours, Frank. The message itself took around three minutes to write. A further twenty minutes followed while I considered how to sign off. I settled on yours, which I wasn't entirely happy with, mostly because I'd never quite understood its implication. I procrastinated a few minutes more, then pressed send. Twice. As soon as I'd done so, the bundle of nervous energy that had been my companion all evening left my body as swiftly as a sneeze. Suddenly I was utterly exhausted. I turned off the computer and tiptoed into the bedroom. Heidi was snoring lightly. 
I lay down beside her, not bothering to change my clothes. At that moment I realised she'd been lying there naked. Oh, I thought. That was our signal. Whenever one of us wanted to have sex, all we had to do was remove our clothes and the other would follow suit. This could happen at any time of day. My abiding memory of our time together was one sunny afternoon she entered the living room and didn't say a word, just took off her clothes. I took off mine and we tumbled to the floor. She propped her legs up on our matching beanbags. I may have been terrible at being her boyfriend. May have been? Okay. I was terrible. Fact. But at least I was good at the physical stuff. Apart from this one occasion. I'd been too wrapped up in my own preoccupations to pick up on her cues. This may not seem like a big deal to you. It was just one night. We'd both have forgotten by the morning. It's worth repeating. The sex was good. Without it, I was just an annoying guy who happened to share Heidi's bed. I'm sorry, I said, over breakfast the following morning. What for, she said. You know, I said, I was busy last night. I missed the bat signal. I didn't mention we called it the bat signal, did I? I was hoping to avoid that. Oh well. Don't worry, she said. Plenty more where that came from. Are you sure? I said. You're not planning on leaving. Frank, don't do this. Sorry, I said. I'm just worried I'm not good enough for you. I'm not sure what I can do to reassure you, she said. I love you if that helps. This would, of course, have been the perfect opportunity to say something like, I love you too, forget I mentioned it. Instead, I said, why? Heidi, to her credit, simply finished off her coffee and left for work. That afternoon, Tim Steele replied to my email. His message consisted of four simple words. Are you a journalist? I replied. Hello, Tim. Many thanks for getting back to me. I understand why you're asking this question. The answer is no, I'm not a journalist. Dennis is my one and only connection to the media. I can assure you that anything you choose to speak to me about will be in the strictest confidence. A conversation between friends, if I can call myself that. Please let me know if you're happy to talk to me further. I was in a bit of a rush typing the message from my work computer, trying to make it look like I was doing my job, whatever my job happened to be that week. Moments after sending, I berated myself for that conversation between friends comment. I was coming across as desperate. Maybe that's what I was. This wasn't a matter of life and death or anything. If anything, this pursuit of the truth about Dennis and Miss Angel was a distraction from the serious business of building a life for myself with Heidi. Reopening this investigation of mine had already resulted in me failing to have sex with my girlfriend, which, as I've already stated, was a big deal. Still, I couldn't help myself. I needed to know what had happened. So yes, in my own way, I was desperate for answers. Or was I desperate for something else? I wondered, was the fact that I'd failed to respond to the bat signal, that is just what we called it, okay, was something to do with the fact that I'd been thinking about another woman. Seeing Miss Angel in that bar, feeling her hand against mine, seeing her dazzling eyes work their magic on me, I could see how she'd done what she'd done. I understood how Tim and Christopher, and however many others like them, had fallen for her. I'd always been a little bit in love with Miss Angel. There was no denying it. Love was probably the wrong word to use. 
Anyway, Tim replied, Hi Frank, just wanted to check that one thing before proceeding. Yes, I'm happy to speak to you. It would have to be face to face. Would you be willing to travel? I'm guessing you're still in Manchester. I'm about 200 miles away myself and would prefer not to leave my home for too long. I replied, Oh gosh, don't worry about it, Tim. I'm more than willing to come to you. If you let me know your address, I can drive down this weekend. We wouldn't have to meet at your home if you'd rather not have a stranger turn up at your door. We could meet in town or something. Let me know your preference. I pressed send, then internally screamed, Gosh, Frank, gosh, when have you ever said that? Tim replied, suggesting that we meet up in a cafe close by to his house. Apparently, my use of the word gosh hadn't offended him too much. It was only when reading the messages back to myself later that evening that the words, I'm guessing you're still in Manchester, jumped out at me through the screen. I hadn't mentioned where I lived. The only personal information I'd disclosed was my name. I wasn't on social media, but I'd done some bits of writing for various websites over the last couple of years, which mentioned Manchester in the bios. Presumably Tim had googled me, unless Dennis had told him who I was. Supposedly Dennis was working undercover the whole time. Even if he'd mentioned me, it would be surprising if Tim had remembered the name all these years later. I resisted the urge to address this question immediately via email. It didn't really matter anyway, or at least... The question could wait until Saturday. Heidi offered to keep me company on the drive down to meet Tim. I thanked her for the offer and apologised that I wouldn't be around this weekend. I told her it was probably a wild goose chase anyway. It was just something I had to do. She said that was fine. She'd see some friends on Saturday night. I spent most of the journey wondering why I'd turned her down. If Jenna had offered, I kept telling myself, I'd have said yes, it would have been fun too. Was it fair to measure Jenna against Heidi like this? They were very different people, thankfully. For the first time in my life, I was in a relationship with a stable person. Would Heidi have whipped me away on an adventure incorporating breaking and entering plus various forms of borderline harassment? Of course she wouldn't. She'd find herself a nice museum to hang around in while I had my civilised chat with an ex-cult member. I could have brought her with me, but I didn't, because I didn't want her to get bored. Now she'd be out partying without me. I pulled over to the side of the road and texted her. Sorry, I should have brought you. We should be together always. I arrived outside the cafe I was due to meet with Tim a couple of hours later. I was 15 minutes early, so I sat in the car for a while. I pulled out my phone and saw Heidi had replied, Please stop freaking out, kiss kiss. I texted back, sorry, kiss kiss. She replied, and stop saying sorry all the time, kiss kiss. Okay, I texted, hope you have a good evening. Who are you going out with, kiss kiss? Ranj and Paul, kiss kiss. Who's Paul, kiss kiss? Uni friend, I'm sure you'll meet at some point, kiss kiss. Do you like him, kiss kiss? I'll refer you back to my earlier message, kiss kiss. Which one, kiss kiss? Stop freaking out, kiss kiss. Okay, sorry, kiss kiss. There's a previous message addressing the S word too, kiss kiss. Have a good time, kiss kiss. I will, hope the investigation goes well, kiss kiss. I entered the cafe with five minutes to spare. 
It turned out Tim had already taken a table in the corner. I recognised him immediately from the photos Jenna had mailed with her note. As she'd observed from the before and after shots, the former taken in the late 90s, Tim had undergone a significant physical transformation, having lost almost half his body weight. The long beard and shaved head disguised his original appearance still further. Apparently, he was the same age as me, although he seemed much older, the way a lot of the men I met in prison did. Aside from that, he looked very well. He was smiling anyway. It's nice to meet you, I said, sitting down opposite. I'm Frank. Yes, I know. Dennis mentioned me? He didn't. So you... I realise I introduced myself on the email, sorry. Anyway, it's good to be here. Thank you for doing this. I'm happy to help, he said simply. There was a trace of Northwest England in the cadence of his speech, but the way he pronounced his vowels suggested he hadn't been there for a long time. His voice was hauntingly similar to Miss Angel's. Tim spoke with the same affectations, like a robot's attempt at human speech. So what are you doing with yourself nowadays, I said, since leaving the, um, whatever it was you guys called yourselves. We didn't call ourselves anything in particular, said Tim thoughtfully. It wasn't that kind of group, I suppose. What kind of group was it? Tim peered down at the tablecloth and laughed nervously. Eh, Sorry, it feels weird talking about this stuff. I'll get us a drink, I said. What are you having? Tea, please, he said. I'll be right back. I returned with the drinks a couple of minutes later. Tim was still peering at the table. Listen, he said. I don't mean to criticise, but you didn't need to make up that story about seeing Eileen in some bar. Oh, I said, no, I wasn't trying to trick you or anything. I really did see her. You ought to know that wouldn't have been possible, he said, looking at me right in the eye this time. I knew that look. I'd seen it before. Jenna often had that same exact gleam in her eye. Dennis did too on occasions. Certainty. Pure certainty. It's a face I'm sure I've never pulled in my life. Although, of course, I can't be certain. One thing was for sure, though. Regardless of how Miss Angel's community had ended, Tim remained a true believer. I hadn't been expecting this. I had to think on my feet. It must have been someone else, I said, trying my best to sound casual. Yes, he said firmly, it must have. Anyway, I said, this group of yours, I realise how strange it must be discussing it all with an outsider. Let me tell you what I know. Maybe you can verify some of the suppositions I've made along the way. Eileen Angel is not Eileen Angel's birth name. She used an identity fraud specialist to create a series of aliases for herself, including the purchasing of multiple passports, birth certificates, national insurance numbers and so on. I take it that's a supposition, he said. No, that part's verifiable, I said. By who? By the fraudster she used. You trust a fraudster to tell you the truth? Let me run some names by you. Maybe you've heard some of them. Ellen Moon, Leanne Skye, Ashling Craft, Lynn Heaven. Tim shook his head. It doesn't matter, I said. Let's skip over this part. I see what you're trying to do, he said. I'm just looking for answers, that's all. It doesn't seem like you are, he said. It seems like all you want to do is ask questions. I found that's the best means of obtaining answers. It's the kind of questions you're asking. You're, you're making it look like Eileen was lying to us in some way. Oh, 
I said quickly. I see what you mean. Sorry, Tim, I think we got off on the wrong foot. Just to be clear, I'm completely open to the idea that Eileen Angel is an extraterrestrial being. I'm not questioning that at all. I commended myself on the straightness of my face before continuing. It may sound as though I'm questioning her methods. Surely you can't blame me for that. From an outsider's perspective, her methods seem a little bit wacky, to say the least. Tim, to my relief, found this observation very funny indeed. When he stopped giggling, we clinked our cups together and each took a sip. So what else do you know, he said, besides all this forgery nonsense? I understand you were based in Devon for a couple of years during phase one of the, whatever you call it, the operation. Phase one involved preparing and planning phase two, is that right? Tim nodded. This is where I'm stuck, I said. The only thing I know about phase one is that it was preparation for phase two, and I don't know a single thing about phase two. I don't know where it took place or what it was for, other than the assumption it was something to do with Eileen's return to her home planet in 2002. Tim smiled, his eyes growing a little sorrowful at the mention of Miss Angel's disappearance. In other words, he said, you know nothing. True, I said, almost nothing. I've heard that Dennis left the group before phase two began. Correct, said Tim. I know you don't have to tell me anything, I said. You could walk out of here and never see me again and there's nothing I can do about it. But you're here and you say that you're happy to help and I really hope you can. I just want to know, Tim, what happened? I wish I could tell you, he said. You wouldn't believe me, even if I could. I can try, I said. In any case, I wouldn't be able to discuss it here, not in public. Shall we go somewhere private? Did you drive here? he asked. I nodded. Would you mind driving an extra hundred miles or so? If we leave now, we could get there while it's still light. I replied without hesitation. No problem. Where are we going? You see, the thing is, Frank, I said I'm unable to tell you what happened. I could try, but it'll just be so much easier if I show you. Thank you for listening. If you're interested, there's the footnotes section coming up after the theme song. I can't tell you anything about it. It's only for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Please take a look at my website, frankburton.co.uk, where you'll find The Green Room, a webcomic about celebrities in the afterlife. There's also the Ragbag Rambler video series and much, much more besides. My other podcast is called I Like The Sound and we've got some great stuff coming up on that very soon indeed. I will see you soon. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous, let's misbehave. When Adam won Eve's hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. He didn't care about those apples out of season. They say the spring means just one thing to little love birds. We're not above birds. Let's misbehave.
Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, would be the great event of 1928, dear. Let's misbehave. Welcome to the footnotes. Hello. Back in the centre of Manchester again. It's quietened out a bit now, so you probably hear slightly less background noise this time because it's a little bit later in the evening. There are fewer people around, but there'll be, you know, the occasional police siren, random bit of shouting here and there. Keep your ears open if you're interested in what's going on in the background. Better than listening to me waffling on, I suppose. <laughs> You don't have to listen to this, by the way. I'm th this is the optional extra section of the podcast. I mean, you don't have to listen to the podcast at all, do you? But uh, you especially don't have to listen to this bit. Now, uh, like I say, I I'm recording this directly after having recorded the previous footnotes section. And uh, I've got less time available to make this recording. So, thankfully, I'm not going to go on for as long. Let's get straight on with the footnotes for this bit. The story's getting good, isn't it? I've just been going, trolling my way through what you just listened to in the main section. Yeah, the story's getting very, uh, very interesting now. We've got the final part next time. What a great story this is, Endless Impossible. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very pleased with it. I will be recording uh, for uh, episode, I guess, episode nine of this series. Are there eight, yeah, eight parts of the story, and then for episode nine, I will be recording Ragbag's Fourth Wall, which is what I did for the Brollywood series. I did a whole episode about how uh, my thoughts and reflections on the story, how the story was put together, where it all came from, genesis of the ideas, all that sort of thing. That will be discussed in Ragbag's Fourth Wall. So let's get through all the references before I run out of time. There's actually there's only more references than we need to go into, I think, mostly because in the Nick Cave section, there's the big kind of Nick Cave quote, which is a whole bunch of references. There's so many references to all these different women and stuff in in that quote. Far too many for me to go into. And a, a, a few of these people, I don't even know who they are, so I would have to do the research into who these people are. And it really isn't important. The important thing is, you know, what was said later on after we made all those references. So it's not really important. Uh, but none of it is. None of this is really important, <laughs> as I keep on saying to you. Of course, within that quote, we have the origins of the title of this series and the title of the fourth ragbag book, Endless Impossible. That comes directly from this Nick Cave quote. Hopefully you spotted that. Reference to the Beta Band. Absolutely great band. If you don't know them, I very much recommend you check out the Beta Band. One of my favourites uh, for a very long time, actually, in my late teens, early 20s did a lot of listening to the beat band in particular the three eps i don't suppose it is a proper album it's just the three eps that were put together but it works really well as an album and hot shots part duh 
because uh, the three EPs isn't a proper album. And the first album, which most people didn't like it, the band didn't like it, and they kept going on about how much they didn't like the album that they had recorded. <laughs> I think I only heard it once. I wasn't a big fan. And um, then they recorded Hot Shots Part Deux, which... Uh, Named after the uh, the Zucker Brothers film, of course. For no apparent reason other than it's, it was their second album. And uh, it was just, I guess, a bit of an in-joke. But uh, Hot Shots Part Deux is such a great album. I've, I've heard that so many times. I think it may even be the album that I have listened to the most of any album ever. Uh, I've listened to Hot Shots Part Deux so much over the course of several years. That would be a contender for my most listened to thing. They didn't have Spotify in them days. I could look at the stats on Spotify nowadays, couldn't I, and see how many times I'd listened to it on there. But it was not to be. These uh, bits of data will go unrecorded throughout history. Now, the section of the podcast, of my own podcast, I quoted myself at length in the Nick Cave section earlier on, and it was from an episode called The Envy Edition of uh it's one of the earlier episodes of the ragbag podcast and it was re-released as the envy edition the director's cut would you believe just because in the early episodes of the podcast the sound quality wasn't as good as it should have been i didn't really know what i was doing you know it had quite a punk aesthetic to it if you will <laughs> that's uh, that's my way of covering up for the fact that it was a bit rubbish it had a punk aesthetic <laughs> There's a little cover story for you. If you ever do anything that's a little bit rubbish, all you have to do is describe it as having a punk aesthetic. And you can get away with it scot-free. But I decided to, to release a much better sounding version of the Envy Edition, which was a two-part episode. And one of my favourite things that I've ever written, I think, the Envy Edition. One of my favourite parts of the Ragbag Universe. And I'm glad to have had the opportunity to quote from it because it's one of my own personal favourite bits of my own writing I would say that story I heartily recommend that you check that out particularly the don't listen to the original version because it's a bit uh, the sound is a bit ropey ragbag episode 93 the MB edition the director's cut check that one out and that is where to find Heidi really we've introduced Heidi as a character now uh, in the fourth book she is this is her first appearance in one of the ragbag novels she's appeared in stories that I've told mostly in the early episodes of the podcast and she's been alluded to several times, particularly in Everything I Am. There's a whole section in there which talks about the breakup and stuff like that. But she's never actually appeared in person as a character until this point. So it's taken four books to get to this point, or four series to get of the podcast to get to this point, I suppose. But we're there, and we're here with this character. So there you have it. That's that. A reference to Haraki... <laughs> Gonna, gonna say his damn name wrong, aren't I? Haruki Murakami. I almost said Haraki, but that's uh, that's not how you say it. Haruki Murakami, one of the all-time great novelists, in my opinion. Uh, I know that there's a lot of talk about male writers who aren't very good at writing about women, and that's a big theme of this series and a big theme of Endless Impossible, the book. Okay, so this reference to Murakami, I haven't read his works for a long time, but I know that he has been slated quite heavily for not being very good at writing about women. And I believe he's been nominated for the Bad Sex Awards <laughs> at least once or twice, I think. If you don't know about the Bad Sex Awards, the Bad Sex Awards is 
a literary prize. <laughs> Every year they award this prize to a writer who has written a particularly excruciatingly bad sex scene in a novel. And by and large, those writers tend to be men. I believe that Murakami is, is a big hitter in the Bad Sex Awards. And generally, this, the way that he writes about women is not held to be very good quality at all. But I mean, I honestly, it's been a good few years since I read a Murakami novel. And I honestly can't remember what, from, from the books that I have read. Now, particularly, I was a big fan of the book Kafka on the Shore, which I'm not sure how many female characters there are in that. Greatly enjoyed Norwegian Wood as well. And... Uh, the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, those are the big hitters for me, Murakami-wise. And I don't feel like I'm in a position to comment on the way that Murakami writes about women because I'm a bit rusty on his work. I was quite young when I read those books and I didn't have the kind of knowledge of critical theory that I have now, for example, you know. Also, you know, th there were certain things that I didn't really think about that perhaps I should have been thinking about a bit more. And I think that's part of what this series is about. Partly what Endless Impossible is about is me getting to grips with the idea of historically male novelists have been generally pretty bad at writing female characters, writing about male-female relationships. I mean, so many examples. I mean, it's just any, any kind of male author from the 20th century. Just pick one. Have a look at the way that this randomly selected man writes about sex, writes about women, writes about male-female relationships. I would say the chances are it's probably not going to be of a very high quality. And I think that's to do with the, the culture of the time, I think the culture of the 20th century. I think perhaps people weren't ready to have the kind of conversations that people are having now. Obviously, there was a lot going on in the 20th century in terms of feminism and lots of discussions about gender and lots of writing about gender and critical theory about gender and from what I can gather most of that was done by women. I mean that's probably a gross oversimplification but there's something in it, there's something in that general pattern <laughs> of male writers just not having the skills to write about women properly and not being encouraged to have the skills. And there was a culture that just allowed this to happen, I guess, because the culture didn't consider this to be an important thing. The culture didn't consider the idea that male writers have a responsibility to create three-dimensional female characters who are constructed in the same way that the male characters are constructed, as in not just as one-dimensional sex objects or one-dimensional stereotypes or stock characters. There is a sense in which male writers have been traditionally just expected to write about male characters. And their female characters are just kind of walk-on parts that don't really matter and don't really bear much scrutiny because they're not really that important because their books are all about the male psyche. And I suppose what I'm doing with Endless Impossible is just trying to say, well, what's the deal with that then? <laughs> what's the deal with that then? What's going on? What's the deal? Just asking questions, bro. <laughs> 
let's see, are there any more um, things, any more references? Apart from, apart from Humpty Dumpty, no. <laughs> I feel that's quite charitable of me to include Humpty Dumpty in this list. You know, um, I don't think Humpty Dumpty needs to be discussed, you know, to the same level that Murakami ought to be, <laughs> I think. Uh, I'm not familiar with Humpty Dumpty's literary works. And I'm not entirely sure why I included Humpty Dumpty in this list. But, I mean, it, there was a reference to Humpty Dumpty. I was, I was just being thorough. I was going through it all. I was just being thorough. So Humpty Dumpty's there. One final thing I, I will talk about while I've got the time, uh, while we're on the subject of Nick Cave. There's a thing that I was saying the other day in one of the previous footnote sections. I was speculating. Let me just stress that. This is pure speculation. I was suggesting that the reason why Salman Rushdie has this tendency to espouse these kind of conservative views in public is that he's pandering to a conservative readership and it's not necessarily what he thinks privately. They've done the market research, they've looked at who exactly is purchasing Salman Rushdie's fiction and I suspect that it turns out that more of them are Times readers and Daily Telegraph readers rather than Guardian readers in the UK, or whatever the international equivalent of those newspapers are, I don't know. But you get the gist of what I'm saying, that most of his readership is conservative with a small c, perhaps. And so he therefore feels the need to pander to his audience by telling them what they want to hear. This keeps being done, this this keeps happening with Nick Cave. Once again, I have to say, you know, Nick Cave is such such an amazing artist, such a great musician, great songwriter. And his work has had this huge kind of renaissance in recent years, in the sense that, is renaissance the right word? Surge in popularity is what I mean. Surge in popularity. I mean, maybe like sort of uh, 10, 15 years ago, he was much more of an outsider to the music scene. You know, he didn't quite fit in with what people thought a rock musician should be and he was considered perhaps to have had you know the best of his work behind him and obviously from my point of view I, I do maintain that year on year he's getting better with age it's really extraordinary to see kind of each time he releases an album it's better than the previous one that I think it's just the way that he is and just this kind of increase in quality that has led to the increase in people being interested in him is presumably he's selling loads of records i mean he's certainly selling loads of concert tickets he's selling out these huge venues he was playing the o2 in london he played manchester arena i was fortunate enough to go and see that and uh, he kept saying during that gig i can't believe i'm here i can't believe i'm playing this venue he was so um appreciative of the fact that so many people had come out to to see him play because it, it wasn't like that, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago. He didn't have this kind of massive popularity that he has now. And it's not because he's gone more mainstream. It's, if anything, it's got more and more challenging as he's got older. But like I say, because he's had this huge surge in popularity, there's been so much interest from journalists who, you know, keep asking all these same questions of him and keep, oh, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And he he just ends up answering in the best way that he can. 
And the thing is, I think with someone like Nick Cave, people want him to have the same political views as them. This is the problem, I think. And I've said this in the past, there is absolutely nothing political about Nick Cave whatsoever. The only even remotely political song he's written is God is in the House, which is a great song, that satirical song about hypocrisy within American Christian communities. And it's more a song about religion than it is about politics, as a matter of fact. So it's not particularly, even that song isn't particularly political. And none of his other songs are even remotely political. There is nothing in his work to suggest that he is right-wing or left-wing or whatever. And I suspect that is because he's not a political guy. He, he doesn't feel the need to kind of preach to people about his views because he doesn't really have strong views about politics. It's not something that he thinks about. This is my take on it anyway. I mean, I don't know the guy. I don't know what goes on in his head. But, you know, if you hear him talk, uh, you let him talk about the things that he wants to talk about. He will not talk about politics. He gets shepherded into it and he kind of... People keep asking him these questions. Of, what do you think of cancel culture? He, he said a few kind of disparaging things about cancel culture. But in, in a fairly kind of non-committal way, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like these quotes that I've read of him talking about cancel culture. I don't get the impression that he's properly like into this as a subject. It's just because people keep banging on about it and they want him to have the same views as, as them. And he just doesn't have them. He was under fire for um, going to... He went to the Queen's funeral. Um, I thought it was very odd that Nick Cave was invited to the Queen's funeral. And (laughs) such a strange choice of guest. Very, very odd. I know he's got... I think he's got a CBE or something. So he's... Presumably he's met the Queen when he got his CBE. But I can't imagine he cares one way or the other and and this is what he came out and said as to why he went to the queen's funeral oh no no that's hang on a minute it wasn't the bloody queen's funeral was it it was charles's coronation i do apologize (laughs) it's charles's coronation didn't go to the queen's funeral that would have been a weird invite i mean it's it's pretty weird invite him going to charlie's coronation don't know why they invited him but they did (laughs) okay I think they just wanted to have a cross-section of the community there, you know. So they invited Nick Cave. Nick Cave accepted the invitation and went to King Charles's coronation. I think he just came out and said, I honestly don't care one way or the other. I just thought it'd be an interesting thing to go to. It'd be an interesting spectacle for me to witness. Uh, I didn't want to turn it down because I thought it would be a really interesting experience. And fair play, I think I, think I would as well. This is coming from a point of view from a man who has very, very clear opinions about the British royal family. And for the record, I don't like them, Okay, Not as people, I just don't like the institution. I don't think the institution should exist. I'm very, very clear on that. So it would be very odd if I was invited to King Charles's coronation. First of all, because... uh, Surely King Charles wouldn't know who I was, for a start. Well, it's very doubtful that King Charles knows who Nick Cave is. Very doubtful. 
someone will have had to explain to him who Nick Cave is. And I, I love the idea uh, of uh, somebody going to King Charles, explaining to him who Nick Cave is, maybe playing him a couple of his albums, playing a few of his songs. See what King Charles makes of uh, Cannibal's Hymn, for example. <laughs> what would King Charles make of Cannibal's Hymn? I wonder. I wonder if somebody played it for him when they were explaining who Nick Cave was. If you're going to dine with them cannibals, sooner or later, darling, you're going to get eaten. I think two of the greatest lines in, in uh, pop music, I think. There's something to be learned from them, isn't there? And I think King Charles would have appreciated it on a certain level. But for anyone who complained about the fact that Nick Cave went to King Charles's coronation, I think you need to get over yourself. Uh, because <laughs> he's not this kind of anti-establishment figure that you want him to be. He's, if you listen to his music, he sounds like he is anti-establishment. But he's not. He doesn't care either way. He doesn't have a political bone in his body, as far as I can see. And what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to force your politics onto him. You're not going to get anywhere because he's, uh, he's such a slippery character. But to be fair, I think, I think there are certain uh, things that Nick Cave has said that I disagree with. And uh, it, it would seem that, you know, he does have some fairly conservative views about a number of different subjects, including the whole cancel culture thing, which is a complete non-issue as far as I'm concerned, as I have said in previous episodes. I won't keep going on about it now. But then again, perhaps there is this thing of he's done his market research and he has figured out that his listenership are mostly kind of these middle-aged, middle-class conservatives who want him to say these things and therefore he does. I don't think that particular theory holds much water though because I don't think there's any kind of value to him. He's, I mean, he's hugely successful. He's a hugely successful musician. I don't think he needs to bother telling people what they want to hear. He can do whatever he likes is a, uh, I have described him earlier on as a multi-millionaire rock star. He can do whatever the hell he likes. He can go to King Charles's coronation. I mean, maybe he did go to the Queen's funeral. Maybe he went to the Queen's funeral as well. <laughs> he can do whatever he wants. Good luck to the guy. <laughs> rant over. I finished the rant now. Finished the rant. So yeah, one more of these to go. Thank God. I'm really getting tired of the sound of my own voice, guys. I'm glad there's only one more footnote section to go because um, <laughs> I'm driving myself loopy with all of this, uh, coming out with all of this stuff. I don't know about you, but I'm driving myself loopy. <laughs> I will see you in the next one. Enjoy yourselves. Final part coming up. It's going to be great. Make sure you check out the final part of Endless Impossible. It's going to be a great one. Cheers. See you later.